Morning. We all had a lovely sleep, I'm sure. Enjoying the beautiful morning. Another gorgeous day. I think it's going to be a bit of a warm one today. But uh, we are thankful to be here. Very thankful to be here. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezra. Uh, sorry, to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me um, see if you remember some things. So I know we get quizzed at the end and you get to win uh, CDs. Uh, but uh, I don't have any prizes for you. But a number of you have talked to me a bit about this uh, overview concept and how much you've been enjoying it. So Adam lived roughly what time? 4,000 B.C. Smashing. 3,000. Noah. And Abraham lived at 2,000. And who lived around 1,000? David. Okay. Not bad. You're starting. Now, if we expand the period of time between Abraham and the time of our Lord, so in those 2,000 years, so if Abraham is 2,000, who roughly lived in the, t- in the time of 1,500 B.C.? Thank you. Well done. All right. So we have David at 1,000, and then at 500 years we have Nehemiah, Ezra, the, the period of time that we're looking at now. Now you notice, of course, as I've mentioned, that Nehemiah, Ezra, these are contemporaries to Haggai and Zechariah, and very soon thereafter, Malachi. So by the time Malachi has finished his, his work as a prophet, we're at about 400 B.C., so then what happens? We've got nothing, really, yeah. Uh, I think uh, uh, sometimes it's been called, uh, by Ironside's book, uh, become famous, the 400 silent years. So what happened in those 400 years? Well, a lot of things happened in those 400 years. The Jewish people fa- faced tremendous persecution. There was uh, a tremendous sad downfall. You know, we've been talking... So far, and the reason why I mention this is we've been talking about this sadly repetitive theme that the people of God would go, would go away from the Lord and the Lord would bring them back, go away from the Lord, bring them back. And the Lord was constantly speaking to his people, constantly trying to point them in the right direction, constantly showing them love like he does with us. But then I reached a point where it's almost as if the Lord said, you know what? I'm going to stop speaking for a while. Well, let's see what happens. And when we saw it happen, it was tragic. That was when the, the, the nation of Israel was perhaps not ever more fractured until that intertestament period. This is the birth of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all of the different branches within Judaism. And now, as you probably know, perhaps of all religions on the planet, Judaism has the widest spectrum. Have a look sometime at the Israeli Knesset, right? I mean, you've gone from some that are extremely conservative to to liberal, everything in between. And this was a period of time when the Lord, although he always has a remnant, was not, if you will, speaking in that corporate sense to the people. There were people who thought God was speaking to them, and they wrote as if the Lord was speaking to them. That's where we get the Apocrypha, which is really not the Word of God. But I like to think of it in a beautiful context of saying, The Lord says, I've spoken, I've spoken, I've spoken, I've spoken. Okay, I'm going to speak one last time. And he spoke the word. He spoke in the person of his son. And they're the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, as we've been describing this week, made his entrance to this planet. 
And again, if we hadn't stepped back and see that global picture, we might not have appreciated that tremendous anticipation. And here we are now, 2,000 years later, and we could argue in some capacity that the Christian church, if I can use the global term, is perhaps more fractured than it has ever been, with an extreme spread from those who barely would be willing to name the name of Christ to those who are faithful to him. Well, let me reassure you that God is going to speak again one day. He's speaking now. But one day he'll come and he'll tarry not. And we have a future that's real. This isn't some, I hope, maybe, sort of, I'll get to the top of Half Dome, you know. Maybe we'll get there today. No, this is an assurance that he is coming back unequivocally to establish his kingdom. There, the cycle of history, of course, repeats itself. All right, Nehemiah chapter 3. For those who were not able to join us earlier in the week, I won't give you a big review, but we're just trying to get a global view of that period of time um, around the, the uh, return from the Babylonian captivity of Judah, um, which lasted from about 586 to 516 B.C. And we're focusing on uh, the first book we spent a lot of time on was Ezra. And so we spent two sessions on Ezra, thinking about him as a person, but also the work that he did. And then yesterday we introduced Nehemiah. And we saw that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. He had, in one way, the best and the worst job in the planet. The best job because he got to eat the food of the king. The worst job because, as I mentioned, getting disability insurance might have been a challenge because he was at risk of getting poisoned before the king was. Right? And there he was in the comfort of his palace, but we saw three major things about him that he was a man of concern, a man of prayer, and a man of action. So he was concerned about what was happening to uh, the few that had returned under Zerubbabel uh, and Ezra, that they were failing in, in Jerusalem. He prayed that the Lord would give him a direction as to how he could bring the people back to the land in an effective way. And then we saw he was a man of action. And he spoke to the king and he got re- resources from the king and protection from the king to go. And we ended yesterday really when they had just gotten there and they were going to start to build. Well, read with me in chapter 3 as they start to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, verse 1 of chapter 3, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. Now we'll come back to this, because I do not think it is a coincidence that the first gate that they built was the sheep gate. Again, just another simple biblical principle I've shared with many of you before. I know it's particularly with the young people. We've talked about this before. We don't want to pretend that certain parts of the word are more important than others, but you should note the order of things in the Scripture. Notice the first time something is ever mentioned. Uh, so sometimes when a concept or a principle is mentioned, often there's the f- sometimes what we think of as the first mention, the full mention, and the final mention. Which is to say sometime in the scripture, something is introduced. Very often in the book of Genesis, even in a more... Uh, a less a clear way, there's a general mention of something that introduces us to a topic, right? So following with this word and following with what our brother's been sharing with us in, in Abraham's life, uh, the very first time we read about the sheep, right? When, uh, or when, the Lord's, when Abraham says God will provide himself a lamb, right? that was really, that's the first mention of lamb in the Bible. And it's no surprise that it's in the book of Genesis. Well, there might be what we might call the full mention of the lamb. When the, the verse that was even quoted this week, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
And then there's the final mention of the lamb. And often the final mentions happen in the, in the book of Revelation where it says, and the lamb is the light thereof. Now, that's just one fairly simple example, but this happens repeatedly. Note the first place that Abraham uh, builds an altar. Note the first thing someone is found doing. I'm often fascinated by this in the scripture. The first time you read about King Saul, he's lost looking for a donkey. If you can't lead your donkey home, you probably won't be able to lead a nation of them. Right? First time we read about David, he's protecting the sheep. And those two men had very different destinies. So the first things that are mentioned, the first time things are mentioned are important. So here's what we're going to see in a moment. I don't think it's a surprise that we see the priests involved and that the very first thing they're rebuilding is the sheep gate, which speaks to us of worship. We'll come back to that in a moment. All right, let's keep reading. If I keep stopping like that, we'll be here until tomorrow. Um, build a sheep gate. They sanctified it. They set up the doors of it. Even the tower of Mia, they sanctified unto the tower of Haniel. Next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them builded Zakur, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of uh, Hassanah build, uh, who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. So here's a second thing that's mentioned, and it's the fish gate. What does the fish gate often represent or the concept of fishing often, often represent in the scripture? Starts with G and rhymes with mospel. Gospel, thank you. That's, they're really quick today, Steve. That's very sharp. Oh, they're right here. They're, I've got them. Uh, so the, the gospel, the concept of bringing the gospel, of, of, of sharing the good news, and, and how, how ironic, if you will, that that is the second gate uh, that's mentioned. Verse 4, and next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Uriah, Uriah, uh, the son of Koz. Next unto him repaired Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshzabel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Banna. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles, note this, put not their necks to the work of the Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment. Shocking, isn't it? that those higher-ups didn't want to get their hands dirty. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshullam, the son of Bisodea. They laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Melatea, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, unto the throne of the governor on this side of the river. And I always like to include verse 7 in our reading when we think about it. We could go on and on about all the different individuals that repaired the wall. But I thought it was particularly important to include verse 7 because we know that there were Gibeonites here. Does anyone remember the story of the Gibeonites? It's kind of fascinating that they find themselves here, don't they? So I I won't bore you with the whole of the story, but the brief version, the Reader's Digest version, if you will, is that when Israel uh, had been brought into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, the Lord had made it very clear to them that his wrath was full for those people in their path, meaning the Lord had already given opportunity for those people to be saved, which, by the way, is another reason why you want to make sure you get your dates right. Because some people think the God of the Old Testament is a God who's in a rush to get upset. 
and to bring judgment. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Notice that God is always quick to bless and slow to anger. It's kind of the way we're supposed to be, right? But he's always patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Go through from Genesis to Revelation. Every single time there's judgment, there's a period of grace beforehand. And thank God for that period of grace because we're living in it now. So this idea that people get in the Old Testament, that God just has his golden boy Israel and wants to just you know, blow apart everybody who's in the way and just take them out because they're unimportant, is absolutely false. Not to mention that it pragmatically didn't happen. That many of those people who are inhabitants of the land did come to trust in God Jehovah. But when the time was of, of his wrath was full for them, and it wasn't just a blanket, I want you to destroy the whole land. He was very strategic in who he told them to fight. So they were coming up, and they were getting very close. They were barely four miles away from Gibeon. And the Gibeonites knew it. They knew that they were next in line to get taken out. But the Gibeonites were different, because the Gibeonites had an interest in the things of God. They had actually taken time to understand what God had said to them. It's almost as if they had read the Word of God. I know they couldn't have in that context. But they knew, for example that the Jews had a particular rule that if you come from far away, you take good care of people, right? So they, they, they pretended, they, I mean, as I sometimes joke, they, they cleared out the Academy Awards that year, you know? They won all the awards. So what they did is they pretended as if they came from far away. So they got some old shoes that had holes in them. They got some moldy bread, and, and they put a little bit of dirt on their faces, and they worked up a little bit of a sweat maybe to try and make themselves a little bit smelly. And, 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 they, and, they, and they walked the barely four miles um, to, to where Joshua was, and they came to Joshua. <sighs> We're exhausted. We come from a far, far country, and we want to make a peace treaty with you. So Joshua had a choice. Do I, A, believe them, make a peace treaty with them? Or B, do I just say, look, they're in the land here. We gotta, we've got to destroy them. Now, often the preachers jump in here and say, if Joshua had consulted of the Lord, he would have known that they were only from four miles away and he would have destroyed them right there and then. Well, this preacher's not going to say that. Because I would strongly suggest that the Lord would have told Joshua to spare their lives. Why? Well, they made a peace treaty with them. And they found out thereafter, right, when the evidence was there, when they did their investigation, wait a minute, you don't come from far off. You come from around the next mountain. You're just four miles away. And Joshua said, look, I gave you my word. I'm not going to destroy you. But two things from now on you're going to do for us. You're going to be hewers of wood, chop wood for us, and you're going to be drawers of water. And you could stop the story there and say, well, isn't that a great story? These people somehow found a way to, to get under the radar and, and, and find themselves protected. But we read, not long after, that the very tabernacle of God made its way to Gibeon. And if you're going to offer sacrifices in the tabernacle, you need a lot of wood for the offering. And you need a lot of water for the purification of the priests. And then we come here in, in Nehemiah and we find that these Gibeonites 
are actually building the walls of Jerusalem. Like, who are these people? So let me summarize. You have a group of people who, by virtue of their sin, ought to have been condemned forever. But because an act of grace from Joshua was bestowed to them, they now find themselves participating in the worship and in the service of the high God of heaven. Do you know anyone else like that? You're a bunch of Gibeonites here, aren't you? You know, that's what I'll start calling you. A bunch of Gibeonites. And it wasn't because of the craftiness of their moldy bread. It was because of the sheer mercy of God. Before you start judging people and wanting to kill them off, before Joshua does, I'm so glad Joshua's in charge and not me. Aren't you thankful that God's in charge and not you? Oh, what a blessing to find these Gibeonites here. All right, come over uh, to chapter 4, please. And we'll go back to our handout in a moment. Let's read a few verses here because it all sounds great, but then, of course, there's going to be challenge. We knew that. But it came to pass that when Sambalat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and they said, What do these feeble Jews Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? You can hear the the tone, right? You know, sarcasm uh, uh, pretty intensely here. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Imagine, if a a little fox, and you know, foxes aren't exactly... uh, fortuitous animals, right? They're not known for their size and strength per se. They're pretty voracious. But he's saying that if a fox just runs up onto the wall, the whole wall is going to collapse. Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from thee for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together Unto the half thereof. Why? For the people had a mind to work. Now the text here is quite interesting because you have this interplay between those who are mocking them and making fun of them and you have the diligence and the persistence of the builders. Let's keep reading. But it came to pass that when Sembalad and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. So initially they thought, oh, let's just make, I mean, there's nothing to worry about here. I mean, they can barely put a wall together. All of a sudden, the wall's built. Awkward. Um, it's done. Uh, so, so now what are they going to do about it? They get upset. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. I want you to please note as we're reading the same theme that probably ad nauseum I've been perseverating on, which is that the God's people trusted in the Lord, but they did what was in their hand, right? This notion of the secular and the spiritual together, that we don't just say, Lord, save everybody. No, we have have a responsibility to talk to people about the Lord. The Lord does the saving bit, but we do the sharing bit, right? We do the miraculous, 
uh, he, he does the miraculous and we do the not so miraculous, right? This was a, a, a fundamental feature of Ezra's life, Nehemiah's life. That's why Nehemiah was willing to accept the resources from this pagan king because he knew that it can be used for the greater glory of God. Well, similarly here, they didn't just say, so we prayed and said, Lord, protect us from our enemies and then just had their heads down as they were building the wall. No, they set a watch. They weren't foolish about it. Lord, help us to be you know, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It doesn't mean that we have to all be gullible Christians, right? And, and these, these individuals were, were going to be prepared uh, to fight. Uh, verse 9 and verse 10, And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst of them, and slay them, and cause the work to cease. So they had strategy around it. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore said I, in the lower places behind the wall and in the higher places, I even set the people and their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us and, and God had brought uh, their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one of us to work. And it came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them uh, held both the spears and the shields and the bows and the harbingers uh, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with um, with those that laid uh, that laded, every one with uh, one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. And half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars disappeared. And then go over, please, to chapter uh, 6. Verse 15. So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day in the month of Elul, in fifty and two days. And it came to pass that when all of our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, that they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Marvelous, isn't it? This is practical stuff. This is is, uh, hopefully things that will encourage you uh, even today. So if we go back to our handout, we remember that uh, the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah is focused on the restoration of Jerusalem. And we've read a little bit here through to chapter 6, where uh, we'll talk a little bit more in a moment about the the rebuilding of the walls and rebuilding of the gates. Um, The very soon right after what we've just read... All of the people, if you will, were registered together, that they got a, a count of who was there and appreciated the volume of the people that were there. And which brings us to, to chapter 8, which I'd like you to turn to for a moment um, and see here just a few of these verses. 
uh, starting from verse 1 of chapter 8, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that before was the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the law, the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And then sk- skip down to verse um, 8 for time's sake. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now, it's not just that they got all the work done. They're like, okay, finally, we got it done. The Lord helped us do this. Everyone goes off their own way and do your own thing. Now that we've got a protected city, uh, we've got walls around the city, go do your own thing. The first thing they did was get everybody together and read the word of God together. And then there were those who had insight that were able to help them and appreciate what they had done. So we learn a lot of things from this book. And I've listed, uh, as I say, major themes here for you. We looked at the first five yesterday. Uh, but let's start with number, theme number six, the importance of worship. So we saw that when they built, it was no coincidence, I've mentioned already, that the Sheep Gate was the first one to be built. And it's interesting because they didn't just start at the Sheep Gate. They started the Sheep Gate, and as they worked all the way around the wall, they, of course, came back to the Sheep Gate at the end. So it was kind of the, the first and the last. Uh, it, it's almost as if uh, sometimes we think of, of the first day of the week, Sunday, not that um, we don't worship the Lord in other days, and we'll come to that in a moment. But in a sense, it's the first and it's the last. It's, it's the, the first and the eighth. We see that uh, frequently used in Scripture. Of course, the Lord Jesus himself is described as the first and the last. But the point that I want to make most clearly from this to you is the absolute central place of worship in the, in the individual and corporate life of the believer. It's not to say that preaching the gospel isn't important. It's not to say that service of the Lord isn't important. It's not to say that having a godly family isn't important. Of course, we've been hearing how these are all interconnected. But God makes it clear here, I believe, to us that first and foremost, we need to recognize His place in the universe and in our life. When we do service as priests, you know, we have the royal priesthood and a holy priesthood. The royal priests are serving God's people, if you will. The holy priest is the one who's serving the God of heaven. When we worship the Lord, and you know, defining worship is always difficult for some people because it isn't, There isn't an absolute concrete difference between, let's say, worship and praise, although there is a slight inferential difference. Worship is really focused on being occupied with the person and character of God himself. Praise has a degree of that, but praise may often be focused on what he's given us. I can look around and say, I love this view. I mean, too bad you aren't all the preachers, because I think, Steve, we get, we get like the best view here, right? You guys have to look at us. Sorry. Um, but we have this beautiful view. So, so I can look at this in sort of a worshipful way and say only the God of the universe could do this. I could do it in a praiseworthy way, saying, Lord, thank you for giving me these beautiful trees and these beautiful mountains to look at. They're not vastly different phenomena. They're overlapping. But worship in its essence is really trying to put aside even the blessings that specifically come to me, but focusing exclusively on Him. So in a sense, what I'm doing, I'm ministering to the heart of God Himself as I exalt the Lord Jesus, because nothing delights His heart. Nothing delights the heart of God the Father 
like the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So if I speak well of him, I'm ministering to the very heart of God. For those of you who are parents here, if I come to you one day and say, I, I want to thank you for your, your son or your daughter, for this wonderful thing they've done, let me tell you how wonderful they, uh, she was with us yesterday paddling down uh, the river here. The young, a young lady who will remain nameless who joined us uh, on, her, on our trip down the river. And she was paddling her little heart out. She was describing the area. She was like the tour guide. I'm like, did the park service hire you to do this? You know? And to our left is El Capitan. Now, so she was, she was marvelous. So you know, if I go and speak to her parents and say how much we value her, it ministers to their heart. They feel it. Imagine what it does to God the Father's heart. When you and I, not just in the Lord's Supper, although that's an example of when we can do it corporately, when we minister to the very heart of God. Worship isn't, you know, and I think, and again, I'm not trying to pick on anyone or, 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 or groups or churches or whomever, but you know, we've now been sort of inundated with, with worship teams and so on, and, and I understand what's being done. It's marvelous and lovely. But just because we're singing, it doesn't mean we're worshiping necessarily. They can really be taken up with, oh, I've been given this and I've been given this and I'm so thankful for this. And that's great. The Lord wants us to have a thankful spirit. That is part of the responsibility. We even commented yesterday, do you remember in Nehemiah's prayer, that there was a worshipful aspect to it, but there was a praise aspect to it in being thankful. You know, you know, oh, oh Lord, we know you're the great and terrible God. You're one. There is, you have no equal. And we praise you. We're thankful that you have done this and this and this and you've given us these promises. Now help us as we want to return to the land. He had that natural template and flow. And my question for you is how is your worship going? On a corporate level, on a personal level, on a corporate level, it should be something we do, and even as they did here, as they finished at the sheep gate and then gathered together, they gathered together to render their worship to the God of heaven who had done this for them. We saw how many times, even Nehemiah said, God is the one who's fighting with you. You've got a sword in your hand. You've got to do the fighting. You're not just going to stand hands behind your back and say, God, fight my battle for me. No, you had a sword in your hand, but God fought for them. And so they came to worship the Lord. How is it going corporately in your assembly, elders who are leading your, your churches here? H have you encouraged? Have you strengthened? Have you taught the flock? about the value and the significance and the importance of worship. Sometimes we think of the Lord's Supper as just the worship meeting, and I would suggest that it's not the only capacity and way in which we can worship. It's one of the beautiful means in which we do that. I think it's lovely how we can very often, not always, uh, but we can start the week that way. It sort of seems to start it on the right path. And I don't want to just get into a you know, ritual kind of way of thinking, but this notion of saying that we are going to have a meeting where we are dedicating what we say and what we think and what we do to focus on the person of the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he's done and less on all the blessings that we have necessarily to focus on him, to, to focus on, as we say, on the giver as opposed to the gift per se. I don't want to get too narrow in our thinking around it, but that is the general focus of that kind of meeting. But maybe more importantly today, because it's not just about an hour-long meeting, because very often the focus, uh, the, the the essence of that meeting, is predetermined the whole previous week, isn't it? I think of the Lord's Supper very much like the feast of first fruits 
You remember the Feast of First Fruits? When the Lord blesses people with crops, they were supposed to collect the first of it, the very first of it. You know, it's tempting to try and get your own nourishment in first and then give kind of God your leftovers, right? And he wanted the first. When they came into the promised land, he wanted Jericho. He was going to give them Ai. He was going to give them other things. He wanted the first dibs, as it were, so that we recognize his natural place in the universe. And so the Lord's Supper is very much like the Feast of First Fruits, where you all week long you've been filling your little worship basket with your enjoyment of the Lord, and then we happen to just bring it all together at the same time. And the Lord happens to just touch a few people to verbally present what we've all brought. If you don't say something at the Lord's Supper, does that mean you weren't worshiping? Of course not. Man or woman. We're all worshiping. We all bring our baskets full. The Lord just happens to touch a few men to say a few things. That doesn't necessarily mean that those who didn't verbally say something weren't worshiping. But that's, that's, that's based on what's happening in your life personally. And time's going quickly, so I don't want to keep perseverating on this, but let me ask you, how is your personal worship going? I didn't ask you what your prayer life is like or how many times you read your Bible a week. Although, don't forget the two challenges, right? Reading through the Bible in a year and so on. How much are you enjoying the Lord during the week? When do you have that time where you can kind of shut everyone else out and everything else out and just enjoy Him? As I've said so often, God is not a subject to learn. He's a person to know. And He wants to reveal more of Himself to you. And you have those moments, those times where it's just the two of you together. It's amazing how God can do that. There's billions of people on the planet, and yet I felt this morning when I went off for my uh, run today, I felt at times this morning that the Lord and I were alone together, that I had his full attention. I love that. Spending time alone with the Lord. And when you have that sheep gate built, in your heart, the other gates are going to come along. The importance of worship. Uh, lesson seven, practical daily life of the believer. Building while living. Well, we saw this incredible dichotomy. They're building it and kind of fighting at the same time. And there's a battle, right? There, there, there's going to be a constant battle. And we need to recognize that. Not everything's rosy just because we're Christians. And everything goes a happy way and we haven't any troubles and we just live our life with rose-colored glasses. And, and if time would permit us, we talked about Gibeon. I give them as a great example. But you know, there's lots of very interesting facts if you go and read the history of all of those sometimes impronounceable names of people that were building. Sometimes they built, built in groups. Sometimes they built alone. Do you ever feel sometimes in the work of God that you're alone? Hey, where, where's, where'd everybody else go? How come I got this portion of the wall alone? Maybe that's the way God intended it for you. And sometimes the work of God is a lonely work. And sometimes no one else seems to appreciate it. No one seems to understand it. No one's there to pat you on the back and say, great work, sister, great work, brother. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your work. Sometimes there's nada. Sometimes it's extreme situations like missionaries who are in desperate areas and they, have, they don't see a single bud of fruit. 
Other times we work with others. Sometimes working with others can be more challenging than working alone, right? <laughs> but we see here in the workers every facet of the daily Christian life. Working with others. Others who are of different social class than us. Others who are different backgrounds than us. Some work faster. Some work slower. Some that motivate others. Isn't it great how Nehemiah motivated his people? Don't you love their people that, that encourage you and strengthen you? Sometimes not even by saying a word, by just being the example to you that you want to be? I'm very taken by this notion because I think we look up to people much more than we ever tell them. And you're being, not in a, in a scary way, but you're being watched more than you think you are. Because people want role models. We all do. And Lord, help us to be like that. And then, of course, as we've mentioned on almost every day today, uh, this week, that there's going to be opposition. And there was both internal and external opposition. Obviously, I read you a little bit of what Senballat and others had said. I, I've listed here sort of three, at least, areas of opposition. There was distraction, there was mockery, and there was true belligerence. And that happens in the life of the Christian, too. There are things in life that can come and distract you. Your work, your activities, the cutting the lawn. I mean, whatever it is can divert you away from what the Lord wants you to do. These are legitimate things often. Well, Lord, help us not to be deterred. And people can mock us and make fun of us. Remember, they said, oh, Fox is going to walk on this thing and knock it over. Does that happen to you where people look at you and say, are you kidding me? Do you really believe that? I think it's going to become more and more difficult for Christians to state their simple opinions and views as based in the Scripture in the society in which we live, because the society's norm is changing, changing, changing all the time. God help us to be true and compassionate at the same time. And then, of course, there's sheer belligerence. And Nehemiah had insight to deal with it. Why? Because God came down and said, Don't listen to Son Ballot. No, don't. No, because he had built a relationship with the Lord and he, and he knew. When that group said, here, come, let's have a little meeting in the plains of Ono. He said, oh, no, <laughs> I've got a great work of God to do. Right. I love that he knew the focus and he knew that balance. And that was built on his closer relationship with the Lord. You want to be able to overcome the adversities that faced you? It's based on your personal close relationship with the Lord Jesus. That constant communication with him that gives you the sense, you know what? This is a deterrence or this is something you need to take care of. Or no, you need to focus on the work of God and leave this aside. Don't take the promotion this time. This is not for you. Well, those kinds of things, day to day, pragmatically, are the things that we have to face. And as we come off to a, a close here, look at these final few beautiful lessons. Unity. It's marvelous to see, although there were some situations where the nobles didn't want to work. At the end of the day, the people had a mind to work. That's what binds people together. You can have the best project managers, right? You can have the best resources. You can have the best uh, plan and blueprint. But for any of you who have been involved in, in, in trying to get people together to work, you realize that it's got to be the unity of mind if it's going to be effective. Do you pray for that in your assembly? That there be a unity of spirit and a unity of mind? That people would have a mind to work? Look, as I mentioned the other night to the young people, we serve the God of the impossible. We serve the God of diversity. You know, you have a mind to work. He'll show you how to work. You don't have to have to discover some incredible tool that you're going to use for God. He's already empowered you with what you need to serve him.
And if you have a desire, if you have a passion, if you have a commitment to work, he'll show you how to work. But it starts with that mind indeed to work. And the unity that they experienced was marvelous. Remember we said the two key questions from the very start of this conference was, can the minority be right and is unity possible? And Nehemiah proved that unequivocally here. Um, I, uh, lesson 10, we in- inclusion of all in the work of God, as I've mentioned. It didn't matter your background. It didn't matter your situation. Everyone could be used. Success only lasts a while before the opposition returns. You know, we, we saw this good part. They seem to overcome. But if you get towards the end of the, bi- uh, end of the book, there's opposition again. And we're going to face it. And you'll come off the mountaintop experience of Yosemite, and you're going to face challenges again next week. Expect it. Be ready for it. Anticipate that it's coming. And lastly, and perhaps a beautiful way to end the message today, leadership means doing what is right by God's standard. And Nehemiah knew God's standard because he was close to the Lord. Because man often has a standard and God has a standard. And there are times when those two things sink, there's no doubt. But very often they're quite disparate. And do you want to be powerful and important in the world's sphere of things and always adhere to what the man's standard is going to bring you? Or are you interested in leading in a way that brings people together in unity to succeed in the work of God? Well, those decisions to go either that path are a day-to-day decision. If you're here today and the Lord has blessed you in some capacity of leadership, of leading, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in Sunday school, wherever it is, Nehemiah is a great example to us of someone with genuine humility who achieved great things for God. And it all started with being a man of prayer, a man of concern, a man of prayer, and a man of action. So Lord, help us to be more like Nehemiah. Lord, encourage us that if they, out with limited resources and great enemies, could build this wall, don't you think the Lord's going to help you build your wall today? What wall are you building? Not physically speaking, corporately speaking in your assembly, personally speaking in your spiritual life. How's it going? How goes the building? Hopefully, after some of these principles today, you'll be encouraged to finish what God started in you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather here. What a, uh, again, a beautiful venue, marvelous fellowship. We're thankful for everyone who could be here this week and bless them and encourage them. Father, what a tremendous testimony, Nehemiah is to us, help us to be more like him. Help us to long to be like these individuals who had a mind to work and in an incredible short period of time were able to finish the work. Bless us, Father. Encourage us. We pray for our brother. Steve now will be speaking to us. Lift his heart as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.